You know, a few years ago, there was a story on abcnews.com that posed the question, are we living in the end times? And it said, nations ravaged by tornadoes, earthquakes, floods, and even locusts. And it was referring to all the tornadoes and the floods that had recently happened in the United States, and evidently cicadas at that time had invaded the New England area. You know, if you've experienced that, you can kind of think that the end is at hand. But the writer asked, is this finally it? And I think every generation has asked that question. You know, if you lived during World War I or World War II, especially in Europe, you might have thought that the end had come. And Christians, ever since Christ's first coming, have been asking, when will he return? And what will be the signs surrounding that event? But there are people out there who obsess over prophecy and the end times. And they're kind of certain that they've cracked the code. They've got diagrams, you know, how it's all going to work out. And some have even made predictions when Christ will return. This despite the fact that Jesus himself told us that no one will know the day. And yet history is littered with example after example of those who have predicted Christ's return and got it wrong. Now, because so many people make predictions and they do it all the time, I think some, someone's eventually going to get it right. But a guy in Texas last year said that June 12th would be the date. And so his followers sold everything that they had. And when it didn't happen, he typically changed the date. The Mayans last December predicted that I think December 21st would be the end of the world. And I've mentioned this before. There's a website out there uh, that you can go to that kind of da measures daily activity leading up to the rapture. And so they track such things as the price of oil, earthquakes around the globe, and, uh, of course, the growth of Walmart because Walmart will be the company that, that labels everyone with the mark of the beast across their foreheads. How they get that, I have no idea. And we kind of wonder when we hear that, are we supposed to be trying to figure out the signs like there's some great mystery, some puzzle that God wants us to solve? Well, this morning, I'm going to try to answer that question for you. But there's another camp out there, and maybe we find ourselves more in it, and that is, is that we can ignore the return of Christ altogether. In other words, we don't really think about it very much. We don't long for Him to come back and to heal this broken world, and we don't live in light of the reality that He's going to return. But you see, He's not Manti Teo's girlfriend, okay? Okay? He really exists, and he's going to come back someday. It's going to happen. And so the question is, is how are we supposed to view the end times? Well, this morning, we're continuing in our series in the book of Mark. And last week, Keith looked at Jesus' resurrection. And so today, I thought it would be appropriate, it would be fitting to look at his return. 
And so in order for us to do that, we're going to skip back to Mark chapter 13, uh, a chapter that we skipped in our series, if you noticed that, to look at what Jesus said about his second coming, okay? And so here we go, buckle in, everything you need to know about the end times in 28 minutes, okay? Mark chapter 13 Verse 1. And i got to warn you, we're going to read several verses here, but I, I think they're pretty interesting and will keep our attention. Verse 1. As he was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings and be witnesses to them. We skip down to verse 13. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers." You ever wondered about that verse? <laughs> verse 18. Pray that this will not take place in winter. Because those, day, those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning. When God created the world until now. And never to be equaled again. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there it is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. And so be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. And then in verse 24, he describes his return. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, I'm sure that those verses are clear to everyone here, right? And let me just say this to begin. Everything in the Bible is equally true. But not everything is equally clear. And what I mean by that is that there are sections of Scripture that are hard to understand. 
Harder to understand than others. In fact, Peter himself, who wrote a few books of the New Testament, said, gosh, there are some things that the apostle Paul wrote that are hard to figure out. They're hard to understand. And today, I think that we're looking at one of those passages. Now, I don't want you to tune me out here because I think that there are some things here that are very clear and very important for our lives. But commentators have pointed out that this maybe is the most debated section in the entire New Testament. No scholar has ever resolved all the thorny complexities in it. And and so I think that the study of it kind of requires a humility on our part that we don't know everything. And you surely don't divide the church over passages like Mark 13. So I think part of the difficulty is because of just simply the rich nature of prophetic literature where you have multiple fulfillments culminating in a final fulfillment. But another difficulty is, is that almost every verse here has multiple allusions to the Old Testament and to other Jewish apocalyptic literature. And I'm not going to get into all that. But what I want you to know is that to understand this passage, I think we have to understand, so to speak, the language behind the language. That's true of any piece of literature, any speech or song. You know, this week on Monday, we celebrated the life of Martin Luther King Jr., And one of the most interesting things about his famous I Have a Dream speech, his great plea for racial equality, is all of his allusions to things like the Gettysburg Address and the Declaration of Independence and the Old Testament. And so, for example, at the very end, he says this, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and valley shall be made low. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh will see it together. See, that's Isaiah 40. It's Isaiah 40. He quotes the Bible. And when we understand that, the language behind the language, it helps us to understand the speech better. Well, the same is true in Mark chapter 13. Okay, and so let's dive in. Let's take a look at it. See, Jesus is prophesying here about his second coming. But it's not just the eternal future that he has in mind here. He's also prophesying about events that will happen in the next 40 years in the lives of his disciples leading up to the fall of Jerusalem. The destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. That's mainly what Jesus is talking about in Mark 13. See, in some sense, he's requiring us to put on bifocals. Bifocals help you to see the near and the far, depending upon how you're looking. And so Jesus here is talking about events that are very near to his day. In other words, what happened in the course of 40 years. But he's also talking about his second coming. Okay, all that to say, the question for this passage is, is what 
what things go in the near bucket and what things go in the far bucket. Jesus and his disciples one day leave the temple district. And as they look back, they see the city. And Jesus says about the temple, he says, not one stone will be left on top of another. And we know that that literally happened years later as a great fire in the temple melted the gold. And an invading army, they originally weren't going to destroy the temple, but because this gold was melted and it seeped down through the, the, in the crevices of the stones, the army decided to take the temple apart, block by block, to get the gold. And so the disciples ask him, when Jesus says this to him, they say, well, gosh, when is this going to happen? And what will be the sign of your second coming? And so he, he teaches them about the events that would lead up to the fall of Jerusalem. These prophecies primarily took place in that generation. In fact, in verse 30, he, he tells us that. He says, I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all of these things have happened. And we know that within 40 years, in 70 AD, Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed. Just as Jesus had predicted. Just as Jesus said would happen. And so the question is, is what are some of the signs that Jesus said would lead up to that event? Well, for example, he says there will be false Christs and false prophets. And that was certainly true back in Jesus' day. He says there's going to be things like famines and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars. And he says there's going to be a great persecution of believers. And we know that that happened. People like Peter and Paul were martyred because of their faith in Christ. See, the years leading up to the fall of the Jerusalem were very brutal. And so Jesus is telling his disciples that they shouldn't be alarmed and they shouldn't be surprised when they see these signs. And he wants them to stand firm in their faith and to continue to believe. See, he's speaking to people who are about to be thrown to, to the lions because they were Christians. And he wants them to know that ultimately he's sovereign and he's in control of their lives, and he's going to come back one day and make all things right. He's going to make all things right. And if you think about it, that message to them is the same message to us, right? He's sovereign over our lives. This word to them gives us hope as well. And not only that, he gives them just some practical advice on how to survive the coming catastrophe. He says, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation. Now, I think there's a greater fulfillment. There's another fulfillment coming someday of this. But he says, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
See, the abomination that causes desolation was the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem. And so carrying their idols, they besieged the city and they starved the people and destroyed the temple. And so Jesus says, when you see this army coming, you better flee to the mountains. But how hard it's going to be in those days for those who are pregnant and nursing mothers. See, this is clearly a prophecy about the fall of Jerusalem. We read that, it makes sense, doesn't it? Now, I know some of you have probably read those verses as referring to the end of times. I want you to get out. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just, we've probably all done that, right? But I want you to see is that they primarily, I think, refer to the fall of Jerusalem. But these signs, wars, rumors of wars, false prophets, people claiming to be the Messiah, persecution, earthquakes, we see those very same things today. In fact, they will characterize every age between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Sometimes more in one generation than another. But Jesus says when we see that, he says don't be alarmed. When we see those signs, don't be alarmed. And don't use these signs as a way to predict his return. The signs are just simply to be a reminder to us to be ready for his return. Doing what God has called us to do in this world. So the thing that Jesus wants, I think, us to see is that the fall of Jerusalem in many ways foreshadows the last day of judgment, the second coming of Christ. It's a dress rehearsal for that day. It's not the play itself. That's to come later. But he does here describe the last day for us. In verse 26, he says this. He says, at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heavens. Verse 32. No one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And so be on your guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a, a man going away. He leaves the house and he puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. See, Jesus here liberates us from the foolishness of trying to find out the day. So much time, I think, has been wasted by Christians on dates and prophecy conferences and books and speculation. It's kind of sad. But we won't know the day. The signs are not given so that we can predict a date. No one knows, not even Jesus. 
in his humanity. The point here for us is that we're to be ready. We're to be ready for his return. Think about it. If someone said this, you know, I've got it all figured out, all the signs. I know when Christ is going to return. The Lord is going to come back in in 2020. What would we do? If you're like me, you'd slough off, right, until 2019. We would. But Jesus wants us to live our lives in light of the reality that he is coming back, and he could come back at any moment. It's going to happen. 300 times the New Testament refers to the fact in some way that our Lord will return. Okay, so what difference should that knowledge make in our lives? How should that affect how we live now? Okay, well, I want to mention just a few things here, very practical things. First of all, when when Jesus comes back, I want you to know he's going to redeem this world. He's going to not destroy this world, but he's going to redeem this world. It says there that he's going to come in the clouds in glory and his presence is going to fill fill this earth. He's going to come and he's going to heal this world of all of its sickness. There will be no more death, no more disease, no more tears, no more sin. Don't you long for that? Do you no longer have to struggle with sin in your life? His coming will mean the end of hunger, the end of poverty, the end of injustice and violence, the end of racial inequality. All will be made right with the world when he comes back. And as Christians, we're supposed to long for that, but we so seldom do. Now, I'll be honest with you, as I get a little bit older and uh, as this body begins to break down more and more, I, I, I do long for the Lord to return. I'll also be honest, every time my wife uh, has a garage sale, you know, I think, Lord, if you're going to come back at any moment, could it, you come back before this happens, okay, <laughs> so we don't have to go through the whole misery here? But you see, we should long for his return because it's good news for those people in this world whose lives are full of bad news. It's good news for those people in this world whose lives are full of bad news. Cornelius Plantinga, I think, profoundly says this. He says, if your own life is too comfortable to want the second coming of Christ, you must look across the world to lives whose aren't. If we're not longing for the second coming, it means we probably live in this little bubble where we're in one of the few places and few times in history where we're comfortable and we don't know or we don't care about the great needs of many people throughout the world. The reality is, is that more Christians have around the world, maybe not here in the United States, 
But more Christians around the world have been martyred in this century than all centuries combined. Sometimes we forget about the great needs, the great suffering that goes on in the world. And so we need to long for the Lord to return for those people, for those who are experiencing great suffering. But secondly, second thing, is is that His coming should make all the difference in our personal lives, especially in regards to our integrity. To our integrity. See, if the Lord is coming again and we don't know when, it's a powerful motivator to live holy lives now. If we know that the curtain could come down at any moment, it changes how we view sin, especially hidden sin in our lives. Peter writes, he tells us, as you long for the Lord's return, as you long for that great day when he's going to come and usher in the new heavens and new earth, be sure to be found spotless and blameless when that day comes. But we're not to be obsessed over that day. We're not to be obsessed over the end. In fact, C.S. Lewis tells us that. He says, he says this, precisely because we cannot predict the moment we must be ready at all times. Not that we should always be kind of running around in fear that the end might happen at any moment. We should be like an 80-year-old man who does not, always, does not need always to be thinking about his approaching death. But he should always be taking it into account that it could be right around the corner. It would be foolish not to. Very wise words, I think. And I think it sums up how we need to think about that last day. Third, the third thing. If we really do believe that that someday the Lord is going to return and He's going to judge this world, it reminds us of our need to tell others, to point other people to Christ. If people without Christ really do go to hell, if we really do believe that, and I, I don't, I'm sure not everyone here in this room believes that, but if we believe that that's what the Scriptures teach, then I think that we've got to be prepared to take some risks and even be prepared to fail at times when we invite someone to church we give someone a book that tells them about Christ. We, we, we need to be prepared to fail at times. But you know what? At the end of the day, I think it's okay. It's not the worst thing in the world. Second Peter, in fact, 3.9 tells us that God's delay in some sense is a good thing because he wants people to come to repentance and to faith in him. But here's the problem. As I gave you point three, hopefully you see the problem. If there is a judgment day that's coming, what hope really is there for any of us? There's a judgment day coming. What hope is there really for any of us? You know, Francis Schaeffer, uh, 
used to give this illustration, and the first time I heard it, it has always stuck with me. But Schaefer said this. He said that God could say to us on Judgment Day, I'm, I'm going to be completely fair to you. Okay? I, I'm not going to judge you based upon the, the Ten Commandments, Old Testament law. I, I'm not going to judge you based upon the law of Christ, the greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment, the golden rule. I'm not going to judge you based upon any of those things. I'm just going to base, I'm judge you based upon your standard that you judge other people. The standard that you hold to other people, I'm going to judge you based upon that. And so you don't like it when people gossip about you? You think gossip is wrong? Well, let me see. Let's go to the replay. Have you ever gossiped about someone else? You know, you get so upset about something that someone else has done. Well, let's see if you've ever done that very same thing in your life. And even if that's how God judged the world, we all know, we should know, that there's not a person on this earth who could stand and face judgment day. And so, how can we long for that day and not fear it? Well, the description the Bible gives us of the second coming that we read here in Mark 13. Notice, we read, we read stars falling from the sky. There's this great earthquake. The sun and the moon, are, they go dark. It's frightening. It, it kind of scares us. But what does that language remind us of? Well, Mark 15, when it says that darkness came over the whole land. When was that? Well, it's when Christ hung there on the cross and was forsaken by his Father. See, judgment for our sins fell on him, so it doesn't have to fall on us. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. And all people who look to Christ are saved. And if he's our hope, if our faith is in him, then the next time that we meet Jesus, when we see him face to face someday, then we don't need to fear that day. Why? Because there is no condemnation for those who hope in Christ. And so we can long for that glorious day to come. We can look forward to it. I hope you do. As the worship team comes back up, I, I want to just leave you with this one final thought. The emphasis of the Bible is not, this is what I'm trying to get across, the emphasis of the Bible is not us finding out when that day, great day is going to occur. But it's how that great day will find us. And so are we ready? Is he our hope? Are we living for him? Are we walking in light and not in darkness? 
And is he our greatest treasure? And therefore, when he comes back, because he's our greatest treasure, we long to be with him. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would help us to long for your coming and give us grace to live in light of it. Help us to be faithful, to do your will until Christ returns. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.